Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm 19. Psalm chapter 19. One of my favorite psalms as we're going through the psalms this summer. And it's just, it's a blessing to be able to look at the songs before we come to the Word because um, I have the privilege of being able to pick what songs we're going to be singing. And there are certain things I think a lot of people maybe from the outside looking in, would say, why are we singing? Like they would come in here and they'd say, what, what is, what's going on here? This is really weird. This is really strange. The reality is there are certain things that are too amazing to just be spoken. There are things in this world that cannot just be communicated through speaking. They, our hearts are so full. Our hearts are so um, intensely set on fire and passionate for what we're speaking about that we must sing That's why the Psalms are poetry. These are truths, but they're truths that are not written for us in a narrative because it must be sung. It must be communicated in a different way, in a more passionate way, in a more eloquent way. As we started this series uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 1 to just kind of begin where we were going. Psalm 1 deals with really only two ways of living life. You are either righteous or you are wicked. Those are the only two opportunities. Those are the only two options. No middle ground. Psalm 2, we saw really as a whole, the nations are wicked and they are raging against God. But God has graciously given us His Son as King, as Messiah, to save us from our sins. Then, last week we looked at Psalm 15. If God truly is King, how can we approach Him? If He is King, how can we come before Him in such a way that we can approach Him when He is holy and we are not And we looked at Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 15, that we can approach him in an intimate relationship with the God of the universe through the Son. But really, Psalm 19, the next question that we would ask ourselves is, okay, if I'm able to have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe, how do I get there? How can I have a relationship with him where I know him? How do I get to know him? What are the ways, what are the means that God has given for us to know him? Psalm 19 is what that's all about, getting to know God, knowing Him as He has revealed Himself. Psalm 19 is familiar to most of you. It's a very beautiful psalm. It's a very pregnant psalm. We are not going to be able to dive into each detail. We're going to have to do a flyby on some of these things, but hopefully, Lord willing, you'll have an overview and then be able to dive in deeper with the discussion questions that we'll be going through on Thursday night. Uh, We'll be going through those together, but I encourage you to start working through those, maybe even in your family devotions, family worship together uh, as you prepare for Thursday night. You can dive in a little bit deeper than we're going to be able to go just because of time. C.S. Lewis calls Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. You'll notice uh, as we start, verse 1 has a subheading above it. The choir director. This is written for the choir director, and it's a psalm of David. So David wrote Psalm 19, and he wrote it specifically for the choir director. And I don't want to make too much out of this, but I think there's something that's helpful to understand with that little subscription, superscription that we haven't come to yet in our study for the choir director. If you've ever been to the Hollywood Bowl or if you've ever been to any uh, orchestra where you're watching 
before the conductor comes out, it's just kind of noise. It's beautiful, and it's getting ready, and it's starting to work its way into tuning and getting ready for the actual performance. But until that conductor gets up and does a little tap-tap with his baton, everybody's trying to figure out what they're doing, maybe practicing one last little measure of a song, making sure that it's all ready to go, shored up. And then the conductor comes, and everybody singularly is focused on the conductor. As he taps and then he moves and with his hands and uh, with gestures, not only with time, but with uh, raising the volume or lowering the volume, he is able to dictate where the performance is going to go. And the orchestra, with intense attentiveness, listens carefully. I think that God, if you will, is our conductor. The, the question is not, is he speaking or is he getting our attention? He is doing that. The real question is, are we listening? Are we still trying to tune our instruments of our lives? Are we trying to tune the instruments of our souls and doing it on our own and, and trying to figure things out apart from him? Or are we listening to him as he tap taps in creation, as he moves his hands and speaks to our souls through his word? Are we listening? There are two main ways in which the Lord communicates what he desires to communicate. And those are in your bulletin. You can see those two W's, the works of God and the word of God. Those are the two main points that we're going to go through. Clearly split up verses 1 through 6 in this psalm, the works of God and verses 7 through 14, the word of God. So this morning, let us listen to him speaking. Let his tap tap of the baton quiet our souls focus our hearts, turn our eyes to him, and let him conduct and direct as he speaks. Verses 1 through 6, we find the first avenue, the first way that God speaks. And it starts in verse 1, the works of God, speaking the glory of God. My Bible says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. The heavens are telling Uh, Some of your translations might say the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, That's okay. I would rather that word be, that declare word, be a a participle because it is a participle. That's why I like the NAS translation. The heavens are telling, meaning it's continually happening. There's not a moment that it's not happening. It's progressive. It's present. It's ongoing. And what are they proclaiming? They're proclaiming the glory of God. They're telling, they're declaring the glory of God. Of God. What is God's glory? You can just underline that word in your Bible or circle it, glory. Uh, it's a Hebrew word, kavod, meaning weightiness or depth or a gravity to something. If you look at God and you say, eh, he's cool, uh, we've maybe missed the mark. You look at God and you say, he is weighty. He has weight to him. He has a gravity to him that in essence we cannot look at him and remain unchanged. We either need to say... He is weighty and filled with gravity and who he claims to be, and I will serve him and bow down to him. Or he is who he claims to be, and I want none of it. The glory of God is what the heavens are telling or declaring. Quick note on heavens. The word in the Hebrew, uh, Shemayim, is a very general word. We actually, in English, are more specific with our word heaven. So I just wanted to draw this out so you know exactly what's being referred to. In Hebrew writing, as in Greek, 
Um, heavens is used for three different types of places. First, you can use the word heavens to speak of the abode of God, the house of God, where God dwells. Obviously, in context, that's not what this is speaking about because this is talking about a place where the sun, moon, and stars are, or where there's a tent for the sun, etc. So this isn't the house of God, but this will help you when you read Second Corinthians chapter 12 and when you speak to Mormons who think that there are three levels of heaven and they take it from Second Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. Why does he say caught up into the third heaven? Why does he say that? Because he knows there are three types of heavens that we can be speaking of. And he wants to be specific. I wasn't just caught up into the air. I wasn't caught up into outer space. I was actually caught up into what we in our English would refer to as heaven. The house of God. Where God dwells for all of eternity. A second meaning for the word heavens is where the clouds, the, the sky, the birds hang out. Just kind of what you can see. The blue, the blue sky. That could be the word here, that the word heavens could be speaking to that. Or it could be where the planets and the stars and the moon live. What we would refer to as outer space. So our words would be heaven, sky, and space. Hebrew and Greek just calls it heaven or heavens. And that's why we need to make sure that we specify what Paul is speaking about in Second Corinthians 12 when he says caught up into the third heaven, the third level, sky, outer space, third level, the abode of God. This here is speaking... At least it's speaking about outer space because the sun and the moon uh, rising from one end of the heavens to the other. But I think it also has a reference to the sky as well, creation as a whole. And what is heaven declaring? It's declaring the glory of God. It's declaring, it's preaching, it's speaking the glory of God. And what I want to do is just work through these verses, verses 1 through 6, and just kind of explain them as we go through. Because again, they are so we could take a sermon on these verses and then a sermon next week on uh, the Word of God in verses 7 through 14. We could do that, but I want to just take it as a whole because it's one unit, and I want to take it as a whole. So, verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Remember when we started uh, in Psalm 1, started the series, we talked about Hebrew parallelism. We talked about the poetry in Hebrew writing that it's not necessarily first and foremost rhyming because then it wouldn't fit in English or any other language. And since God wants uh, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, people group, this needs to fit in any tribe, tongue, nation, language, people group. So you can see here there's a poetry aspect working. It's Hebrew parallelism. The heavens are connected to expanse. Telling is connected to declaring. And the glory of God is connected to the works of of his hands. So if you're trying to memorize this passage, you know the heavens are telling the glory of God, and you know there's another word for heavens, expanse. There's another word for telling, it's declaring. There's another word for glory of God, it's the work of his hands. Hebrew parallelism at its finest. I love the way that the psalmist does this. David is beautiful in the way that he writes his poetry. Verse 2, he says, in another poetic fashion, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So the heavens are declaring or telling the glory of God. Their expanse, their covering, that word expanse is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of um, the Ark of the Covenant when they brought a piece of gold and they hammered it out until it was flattened for the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's the word, their expanse. God literally just flattened out an area for us to be able to sit under. And it's speaking to us. 
It's pouring forth speech in verse 2. The word pours forth is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of a spring that is pouring forth water. If you've ever tried to stop up um, my my sprinklers, uh, I have a very love-hate relationship with my sprinklers. Lowe's knows that. The guy in the sprinkler department knows. Oh, that's the sprinkler guy. He's coming for more sprinklers. He's seen many pictures of my lawn. Um, So this morning, uh, I was noticing that there is a little patch of sprinklers that are not shooting with the force that they're supposed to, which means either I've got some serious problem I don't know about, or the head of one of my sprinklers is broken off, probably by my incredibly terrible mowing the lawn job, but it's broken off somewhere. And so sure enough, I look, and there's a geyser in our front lawn just blowing up. I'm sure the neighbors are looking going, man, that guy's stupid. Um, Geyser's blowing up. And if you try to take the sprinkler and say, I'm going to put this on while the geyser is blowing up, not only will you be incredibly wet after the whole process, but you cannot do that. It's impossible to jam that thing down and screw it on while this geyser is going. Even more so, a natural spring bubbling up. Try to stop up Old Faithful. Don't try it because I think it's really hot, so don't do it. But if you try to do that, you will be unable to. What's the psalmist saying? Day to day... There is something being proclaimed that no matter who you are or what you think, you cannot stop it from telling what God wants it to tell, what it wants it to say. I love the way he says day to day and night to night. In poetry, we would call this a merrorism, which is just like saying ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, young and old. It's inclusive of everyone. This is inclusive of every time. There is no moment when God's What he's trying to communicate with his glory is not being demonstrated, not being seen. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So there's not one second of our 24-hour day that God's glory is not being revealed. But, verse 3, even though it's pouring forth speech, it's not really speech because there's no words. Hopefully you didn't walk by a tree today and the tree said, hey, what's up? Um, That's really weird if you did. Got problems to talk about. So there's speech, but it's not really speech. There's words, but there's not really words. There's knowledge, but it's not coming through a voice. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words. Literally, where their voice is not heard. So there is no place where a voice is being heard, but a voice is always being heard. So it's not through speech, but something is always being communicated. Namely, the glory of God. Namely, there is a God. He made the world. He made the universe. And it's always the universe. The creation is always screaming out. He exists. He made it. Even though there are no words being used. Verse 4. Their line. My Bible says their line has gone out through all the earth. Uh, could be their precepts are going out. It, it's, that word line is propositional truth. I'd give you a cross reference. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 10. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 10, describes instructive propositional truth. So what the psalmist is saying is, creation is speaking truth. Propositional truth. It's declaring to us precepts that we cannot ignore. We can stiff arm, we can reject, but we cannot ignore. What are the precepts? What are the propositional truths that we can understand that creation is telling us? Just... Go outside, look at the sun, look at the trees, look at the stars at night, look at the moon. What are the propositional truths that creation is saying? Number one, that God exists. That there is a God. 
even if you believe in evolution or even if you are an atheist, you know, you know that there is a God. You just choose to not believe it because creation is preaching that to you. Creation is preaching that. It's preaching God exists. It's preaching that God is eternal. It's preaching that he created the world when we weren't here, when it wasn't in existence. So he had to come before it and nothing created him. Therefore, he's eternal. Obviously, it's also preaching that God is all-powerful. He can do all of this with a word. He can do anything. And, as we'll get to in Romans chapter 1, the propositional truth that has been preached from creation is that God will judge those who reject him. We are accountable to our judge. He created us. Therefore, we are his creation. We are his creatures. So we cannot be it would be like my son and my daughter. My daughter tries this every once in a while to say, hey, I'm on my own. I get to do whatever I want. No. Through the miracle of life and the miracle of birth and the miracle of conception, God made you through us. You are ours and we are stewards of you. So you can't do whatever you want. You cannot just go off and do whatever you want. Same thing with God, even more so. God made us out of nothing. And he didn't use anybody to make us. He himself made us. And therefore, we will be judged if we reject our creator. That's what verse 4 means when it says their line has gone out, their propositional truth has gone out through all the earth. So there is never a time when God's glory is not being seen, day to day, night to night. There's also never a place where this is not happening. It's going out through all the earth. And their utterances to the end of the world. It's going everywhere. Utterances, maybe um, your Bible says words. Um, David's saying, look, there's speech, there's words, there's a voice, there's lines, there's sentences. God is preaching. God is declaring his glory and saying, I'm here. I'm here. How does he do it? How does he declare that? David goes to one example. He goes to the sun. Obviously, in verse 1, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, telling the glory of God. So the sky, the, the stars, the sun, the moon, all those different um, things are declaring the glory of God. But David's going to go to one specific example. He says, in them, he has placed, so in the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun. So a specific place, that's what he means, a dwelling place for the sun. The sun has a place. The sun can't do whatever it wants to do. So to us. We have a tent, we have a place. God has placed us in a certain area and we can't do whatever we want to do. And look at what the sun do, what the sun does. Verse 5, I love how he says this. It's just a great analogy. Which is, the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The word chamber there, maybe you would recognize that word. It's hoopah, uh, which is used in Jewish ceremonies today. They have the little tent, the little hoopah that sits over the bride and groom that are being married. That's the chamber that the sun is set in. So what does David mean by that? Well, when I got married, I love all y'all and I enjoyed hanging out with you, but I wanted to say I do and get out of there, right? I want to be with my wife. I love you. You're great. You're fun people and you're my friends and we'll catch you on the flip side of the honeymoon, but I want to get out. That's what he's saying here. 
bridegroom doesn't want to stick around. Bridegroom doesn't want to hang out. Bridegroom doesn't want to say, yeah, we got married and we'll just hang out with our friends for a couple more weeks. Bridegroom wants to get out of there. So too the son says, oh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait when it's two in the morning, which is an hour that I frequent now. Um, when it's two in the morning and the sun is asleep. That's what we tell Chelsea. The sun's going to sleep. It's night night time. Sun goes to sleep, you go to sleep too. You don't have as much energy as the sun, even though sometimes you think you do. When the sun is gone and the moon is up, all the sun just cannot wait to do and is thinking about doing is coming back to say, look, God exists. God is real. That's what the sun cannot wait to do. He uses another example. It rejoices, verse 5, the sun rejoices like a strong man would run his course. Um, This is just like an athletic dude who can do anything and loves to do anything. This is like my brother-in-law, Aaron. Some of you knew him growing up. He could just climb a tree like a monkey, and he loved doing it. And uh, still to this day, he can eat donuts, and it turns to muscles. So he loves just being athletic. Rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Verse 6, the sun's rising is from one end of the heavens to the other, and its circuit to the other end. From one to the other, we know that it's doing that. And then he says this, and I think this is so key to understand. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Why doesn't he say, and there is nobody who can't see it? What about blind people? Blind people can't see. Why does he say heat? Well, if it's a rainy day, it's not shining as powerfully. If you're a miner underneath the earth, you're not going to be able to see it. But every single person, no matter who you are, can understand and feel at one time or another the universal, the most universal element of the sun, and that is its heat. If you're blind, you can still understand that. You can still feel that. So what David is saying is there's not a time that God's glory is not being preached by creation. There's not a place that it's not being preached, and there's not a person who doesn't hear it. There's not a person in the world who does not hear the glory of God being preached. We say, well, then why isn't everybody saved? Why doesn't everybody believe in God? Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is really, I believe, Paul takes Psalm 19 and expands it a little bit in Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, you know this passage. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, and I would add, that they know. You can't suppress something you don't know or understand. Everyone knows and everyone understands that there is a God, but they can suppress that truth by saying, I don't want to believe in him. Because that which is known about God is evident or clear. The word could be clear. It's clear within them or to them. For God made it clear to them. How did he make it clear? Verse 20. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Even though they knew God, again, this is, the Bible does not say that there are practical functioning atheists. Every single human being knows God. The question is, what do they do with that knowledge? They either stiff arm it, reject it, don't honor him, as verse 21 says, and give him thanks. Or they accept it, obey it, submit to it. 
Romans chapter 1 tells us. And you could, you could write this in, in the heading for verses 1 through 6. In theology, we would call creation, we would call it natural or general revelation. The revelation of God. God declaring himself, this is the natural or general revelation of God. Creation is the general or natural revelation of God. A lot of people think that it's unimportant. A lot of people think we don't have to fight for it. And we don't have to say, look, see, don't undermine creation. Don't throw away this sermon that God is preaching 24-7. How powerful is general revelation? You remember Job? Remember the end of Job? When Job is basically saying, God, how dare you? How do you have the right to do this to me? How do you have the right to mess up my life? Remember how God answers? God does not say, um, let's work through theology. God does not say, let's open up the book and talk through scripture. God does not say, let's talk through the finer points of Calvinism. What does he say? Who made the sun? Who made the stars? He goes to general revelation. He goes to natural revelation and says, don't don't you see that I am God? Don't you see? And Job gets it. Remember, Job gets it. When my hand I lay upon my lips, shall I even attempt to speak out against God? Turn over to Psalm chapter 8. We're going to hit this psalm later in the summer. But Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, says similar things as uh, Psalm 19. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There isn't a place where your name isn't majestic. You've displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Then, verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him or are mindful of him and the son of man that you even care for him? That's where Job was at the end of God speaking to him. Look at everything that I've made. And Job says, why do you even care about me? Because he loves us. He loves us. Turn over to Psalm 33. As I said, we'll, we'll spend a lot more time in Psalm 8 later in the summer so we can move over to Psalm 33. Turn to Psalm 33, verse 6. How did God make everything we see? And why ultimately is it such a powerful display of who he is? Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea together as a harp. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear. That's the response. Because God has made everything that we see, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Because he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You say, well, doesn't science say that the earth was made in billions and billions of years. Um, just really quickly, we know that God made the world. The, the reason why they get billions and billions of years is you, you can look at the stars and there's, they're billions of light years away. So what is their starting point? In evolution, their starting point is it started as a little baby star. So of course it had to have taken billions of years to start as a baby star, grow and come and hit earth with its light. And I agree with that, if that's the starting point. But the Bible says very clearly in Genesis, that's not the starting point. The starting point is what we would call a parent's age. Uh, I always like to do this with 
junior hires, when I did this with junior hires and youth group, it was so funny to hear the responses because I would say, okay, how old was Adam? When God created Adam, so Adam is a second old, but how old is he? And junior hires would say, well, he's, got, he's like a man, so he's probably like 16. Okay. 16-year-old man. All right. Um, you see the point. Though he is, I, I often say 25 to 30. I think that's like a young man. So let's say he's a 30-year-old young man. He's 30 years old, but he's a day old. He's a second old. 30 years old, he's a second old. Same thing with stars. Same thing with birds. God made the birds of the air. He didn't make eggs that then hatched and didn't have a mother to feed them. Everything was made with apparent age. And we see this not only in the Old Testament, in creation, we see this in the New Testament as well. John chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine. Wine, by very nature, has to be fermented to become very good wine. So if you were to ask a chemist, a, a a scientist, a chemist, how old is this wine that Jesus just made? It's been, it's been seconds old since he made it. A scientist would look and say, what, this is a good 30, 40-year-old wine? This is amazing. So it's a second old, but it's 40 years old. God speaks and it happens. And he does it with perfection. He declared it all was good. Back in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, the general revelation of God or the works of of God declare his glory, but the psalmist is going to be very specific. We can know God through creation. He has declared himself to us, but we can only know him as, all the way back up in verse 1, God. The Hebrew word there is El, which just is his title. He is a God. It would be like saying he's a king, or he's a lord, or he is a master. Far off, Maybe us civilians never get to see him. The heavens, the creation, the created order declare that there is a God, but that's all they can do. Verses 7 through 14, what we would call in theology special or specific revelation, specific or special revelation. Notice how David's going to change. He only says in verses 1 through 6 that God and his glory is being declared by the heavens. One time he refers to God's title. Look in verse 7. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. My Bible has Lord in all caps, which means that word is Yahweh, which means that's God's personal name. And if you were to count them from verses 7 through 14, seven different times the psalmist says Yahweh. So the creation preaches that there is a God. But you cannot get close to him through creation. We aren't, you know, new agey people. We, we, we love Star Wars, but we don't believe that the Force exists. Um, we don't believe that every single thing, every single life form, every single organism has some sort of power to communicate something to me about who God is and about what he desires of me in an intimate relationship with him. That's why we need verses 7 through 14. We need the law of the Lord. We need the word of God. And this book is God saying, you know that I exist. Now here, would you like to get to know me? Because I want to know you. And that's why I have painstakingly written down my word and preserved it for thousands of years so that you could know me. You realize when we, when we don't get up in the morning and read God's word, when we're not spending time on a daily, uh, moment by moment, second by second, meditating and um, chewing over God's word, when we reject this, we're rejecting God's attempts to say, I want to know you. 
I want to know you. And I want to be known by you. Creation tells us something about God. Scripture reveals God to us personally. So, number two on your outline, not only the works of God revealing who God is, but the word of God or special, specific revelation. In three verses, and we're going to have to go through this quickly, but in three verses we see six statements. There are six titles for Scripture. There are six characteristics for Scripture. And there are six effects of Scripture. The Bible is always under attack. People are always undermining its truth and saying it's not real, it's just a fairy tale, it's just a a history book that has no basis in reality whatsoever. But God defends his word himself. He says, this is what my word is. And these verses are God's answers to those attacks. If you have a question about God's word or you wonder, is God's word truly reliable? Here's God giving you the answer. Six titles for scripture, law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, judgments. Six characteristics, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. And six effects, restoring the soul, making the simple wise, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, righteous altogether. And notice, every single statement has of the Lord. This is God's word. This is God's word. So, let's work through it. Verse 7, special revelation, the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Law, the word law is just saying that God is the life giver and these are his designs. These are the way that we're supposed to live. How are we supposed to live? This is the law. We find in this book what pleases and displeases God. This is how we're supposed to operate in life. This book tells us. We don't have to be wondering or second-guessing what God would desire of us. And because this is God's law, it is perfect. Perfect, not as opposed to imperfect, but perfect meaning whole. Perfect as opposed to incomplete. God's word is complete. And because it's complete... We don't need to look anywhere else for revelation for what God would desire of us or demand of us. That's why 2 Peter chapter 1 says we have everything in this book pertaining to life and to godliness. That's why Revelation at the end of Revelation says don't add to these words. Don't take away from them. It's everything that you need. What's the effect? It restores the soul. Literally, you could, you could put in your margin that word restoring. It's literally transforming the soul. It transforms the soul. Soul is your inner man, who you are, uh, through and through. So we could say in verse 7, Scripture, the law of the Lord, is so complete that it can totally transform the inner person. It can totally change who you are. Which is why in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, You have been begotten again by the word of truth. This word is what changes you from the inside out. Romans chapter 10, salvation comes from hearing the word of God. And because of hearing the word of God, we are given salvation to those who would believe. So verse 7, beginning in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul is really salvation. End of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. Testimony, it's what it sounds like. If you're giving a testimony, you are giving a disclosure of who you are. It's a self-disclosure. This is God's self-disclosure. This is him telling us who he is. 
If we're reading Scripture, we're reading God speaking about Himself. And it is sure, it is sure, if God's speaking, of course it's going to be sure, because He is true through and through. He cannot lie, Titus chapter 1. So of course we know that it's sure. We can rely on it. And it makes the wise, or makes the simple wise, it turns simple-minded people into wise people. Some of you will remember uh, resolved John MacArthur preaching a sermon on these couple verses. He talked about what that word simple means. Hebrew is a very picture, picturesque language. That word simple literally means an open door. Makes wise those who have an open door. So what does that mean? Remember last week we talked about a slander, leg, legs, and spies. You put leg and spy together in the Hebrew and you get slanderer. How does that work? You have to listen to the message. Here, simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the open doors. What does that mean? To be simple-minded is to have an open door in your brain where everything goes in and everything goes out. Some people say, I have an open mind about things. I'm open-minded. The Bible would say, if you have an open mind about things, you should shut that open door. Because a door is discrimination, right? We have a door in our house. It's to keep things in and to keep things out. It's to keep Chelsea in, even though now she can actually turn the lock. It's to keep all the bad guys out. It's to keep the flies out. It's to keep the bees out. We want to make sure that we have a safe house. So if you are saying, I am open-minded about things, and you're celebrating your own ignorance, You must discriminate, and the Word of God is what will enable you to discriminate rightly about what God would have you do, think, say. Taking someone who can't discern anything and bringing them to a place where they can discern how to live life, that's what we would call sanctification. Look at the end of uh, the verse. The testimony of the Lord is short, making wise the simple. So those who have no discrimination or no discernment are made wise, skilled in living because of the word of God. John seventeen seventeen says it that way. Sanctification, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. How are we to grow in sanctification? We must do it by the word of God. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts are just doctrines or principles. They are principles that God is giving to us. And they are right, not as opposed to wrong, but literally they are right in their directing. They're right in their guiding. They'll give us the right path. And ultimately, these principles set a right path, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. But it isn't just the path that's being lit by the Word of God. The Word of God is the path itself. And what does it do? It rejoices the heart. Why? Because how amazing is it to know with every step you take, I know I'm going in the right direction, How bad is it when you're driving and your wife says, stop for directions. And you're struggling with, I don't know where I am. That pit in your stomach feeling when you go, I think I'm lost. You know, for some reason I'm driving like this. And then you got, I think I'm lost. Ten and and two, we're we're in trouble here. Where are we going? I'm lost. And the peace to remember, oh, I know where I'm going. I'm good. The Bible rejoices the heart because we know what God would require of us. God has spoken clearly. He doesn't have a speech impediment. He tells us exactly what he wants us to know. And so it sets our heart on a joyous path. That's why John, 1 John 
John takes the words from Jesus in John 15. These things I have written to you so that your joy may be full. I want your joy to be full. If you were to ask people on the street, what do you want in life? Ask them, do you want to totally transform life? Do you want to be skilled in every aspect of living? Do you want deep down, lasting, satisfying joy? Everyone's going to say, yes, please, sign me up. And the Bible says, this is where you get it. This is where you get it. It all comes from the Word of God. End of verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Commandment, obviously these are not suggestions. God is God, we are not. So God gives commands, but they are pure. Again, not as opposed to impure. They are clear. You could put they're clear. They're not fuzzy. This in theology we would call the perspicuity of Scripture. It's knowable even to a child. We can understand what's going on. And they enlighten the eyes. They give clarity to what we see. The Word of God helps us understand what's going on. It helps us process. The Word of God is the filter with which we process everything going on in life, and we do it in the righteous way. John MacArthur often shares the story of uh, his missionary friends that were coming home from uh, Brigham City in Utah, uh, missionaries to Mormons. And they were sharing the gospel, and uh, they came back home. Um, they had two older girls and a, and a son, and the eldest girl was going into college. And so they were back on a trip uh, from Utah here. They were going to enroll her into the master's college. Uh, they were going to take her to Grace Community Church. And um, they were in a van. They got into an accident. And they got hit, and they got um, hit on the side. And the two girls were catapulted out of the van and instantly died when they hit the ground. Uh, Their son was uh, crunched in the side of the van, but he lived, as did his friend. His son had brought a friend that they had been sharing the gospel with, did not know Jesus Christ. And they had brought this friend along, this son's friend, they had brought this friend along for the purpose of evangelism. Come to Grace Community Church, come to uh, Master's College, hear the gospel. John MacArthur talks about going out to this car, this wreckage where these two precious girls of the rest of their life ahead of them are dead. And the son and the son's friend are living. Listen to the clarity with which this father was able to see this situation. John MacArthur talks about walking up to him and giving him a hug and saying, I I have no words, and just crying with him. And then the father says, isn't God gracious? Why? Because he took my two daughters who knew Jesus, who loved Jesus, and God spared my son's friend who didn't know Jesus. If that friend had been taken, if he had been killed, he would spend an eternity in hell. Oh, isn't God gracious to take my daughters who know Jesus? And then he said this. I wanted to bring my daughters out here to hear your beautiful choir at Grace Community Church. And God took them home to hear the heavenly choir. If you want to be able to stare horror in the face with clarity of mind, to be able to say, God is good, God is gracious, God is wise and just, The only way you will get there is the Word of God to enlighten your eyes, bring clarity to the situation. I want clarity like that in the midst of such horrific trials. 
God's word brings us. And if we want that ourselves, we need to be diving in every day here. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Fear is just reverence or awe or wonder or worship. It can be translated worship elsewhere in the Old Testament. Meaning, Scripture is the worship manual. It's the manual on how to worship God in spirit and in truth. It is here in His Word that He reveals how He's to be worshipped. And if we worship Him incorrectly, we are in danger of doing what Nadab and Abihu did in Leviticus chapter 10, and we're killed for it. Ultimately, the richer your theology, the richer your worship. Your worship, you can only worship God to the level that you comprehend His glory and understand who He is. And the fear of the Lord, or the worship manual, the Lord is clean, inerrant. It has no errors in it, and it endures forever. Inerrant, no errors, unstained, forever. Middle of verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are, sh- are true. They are righteous altogether. Judgments. God is the judge, and the Bible is a compiling of his divine verdicts, and they are true. They're correct verdicts. There's no way he's ever going to get something wrong. They are true. And then my Bible says they are righteous altogether. Ultimately, the translation is a little bit off. The, the way that it should be worded is they produce complete comprehensive righteousness. The altogether comprehensive righteousness, but we miss the idea of the word. They produce comprehensive righteousness. Those six statements of the word of God, they bring salvation. God's word brings sanctification, joy. It enlightens our eyes. It's the manual on worship. It produces comprehensive righteousness. What should be our response to all of this? That's verse 10. Scripture ultimately will become our greatest possession. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, and much fine gold. Ask anybody, would you like a million dollars or would you like a book? Only the man of God and woman of God will say, this is to be desired more than fine gold. Scripture becomes our greatest pleasure. It's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That might not be the sweetest thing in your mind, but think about the sweetest thing. Back then, that is the sweetest commodity that you could find. Think about it, whatever you like, whether it's C's candies, whether it's uh, anything you want, you stick it there. It's better than that. It's sweeter. It's a more pleasurable experience. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned. Scripture is our greatest protector. We don't know sometimes if we're walking into a trap and Scripture is the thing that calls out, no, 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 don't go there. Go here instead. It becomes our greatest provider as well. In keeping them, there is great reward. Literally in the Hebrew, in keeping them, there is a great ending. You want a happy ending? Keep the word of God. And ultimately, what is the ending? It's heaven. It's full, intimate reconciliation with God the Father. And scripture becomes our greatest purifier. Um, Who can discern the errors? Who can discern my errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. I have faults that are hidden that I need um, somebody to look upon me and forgive me. And keep me back. Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. I don't want to go that route. Don't let them rule over me. Because then I will be blameless. Then I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. It's our purifier. God's word purifies us so that we can stand before the Lord blameless. Because of his son. So, what do we do? If that is what scripture is to us, then verse 14, 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, that doesn't really connect. Here's how I think it connects. If this word is everything it claims to be, then our words must be this word, and our meditations must be this book. Joshua 1.8, maybe the psalmist had that in mind. Don't let the book of this, this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Ultimately, there are a lot of people who read the Bible, study the Bible, but they're just reading it as a textbook, and they're not looking to connect with the one who wrote it. Remember, God revealed himself in creation, but that wasn't enough for God. He needed to personally offer himself in his word. Do we long, like 1 Peter chapter 2, for the pure milk of the word? Do we long for it? Ultimately, this book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book, as the Puritan used to say. Let me give you just in closing, just a couple of verses that you can jot down. Because the, the reality is we need evidence, right? If we're honest, we wake up and we look at this book and we go, really, again? Is it really that amazing? Can I really just spend time with my kids or my family? Can I do something else? We need evidence before us on a daily basis that reading, pondering, memorizing, and studying the Bible will yield more joy in this life and the next than all of the things in life that keep us from it. We need that evidence. So let me give you just a little bit of evidence, and then Thursday night we'll talk about more. Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Psalm 119, 127. I love your commandments above gold, above much fine gold. You can see, really, Psalm 119 is the larger outworking of Psalm 19. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. Job 23:12. I have not departed from the commandments of your lips. I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my portion of food. I'd rather... Chew on God's word, then eat food. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The conclusion then in the matter is Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. John Wesley said it this way. I have thought that I am a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence, and I am no more to be seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. So, because life is a vapor, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. How to land safely on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. And Spurgeon said, It is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavored with the very words of Christ so that your blood bleeds the Bible and the very essence of the Bible flows from you. We'll talk more on Thursday night about this, but do we see the Word of God as precious 
as it claims to be? Do we see it as necessary as it claims to be, as our life? But one last place as we close. End of verse 14. I don't want to miss this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Why redeemer? Turn one last place, Psalm 130. Redeemer. That language might be common for us to use in church. We think of Jesus as our redeemer. But to the original recipients of Psalm 19, they would have thought one thing. And that is a slave who has no future hope being purchased out of the slave market and given to somebody who bought them with a great price to take care of them, to redeem them out of a terrible situation and give them hope. Psalm 130 says just this, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Just as the psalmist cries out in Psalm 19, Please don't let me walk into presumptuous sins. David is saying, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. I am in despair. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you would count my sin, no one can sin. Count anybody's sin. God's not going to grade on a curve. So how can we stand before the presence of the Lord as sinners when he is holy? Verse 4, another amazing statement. We look at Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy. This is another big, but there is forgiveness. Nobody could stand, but you forgive. And there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared or worshipped. So I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. I would say, O Christ Bible Church, hope in the Lord. Why? Because with the Lord there is loving kindness. You say, man, I do not treat the word of God the way I should. And I'm constantly belittling it and neglecting it. And I don't love God the way I should. Guess what? Hope in God because there is patient, loving kindness with him. And with him is abundant redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He will redeem us. How did he do that? He did that in his son. Redemption is brought through the Messiah and I believe that's ultimately who David is looking at in Psalm 19. Oh Lord, you are my rock. You are my redeemer. If I do not have you, I will be stuck in the slave market of sin, hopeless forevermore, lost. But you are my rock. You are my redeemer. I will not be shaken, and now I have a hope and a future because my sin, though it demands my death and ultimately my separation from you forever in hell, you died the death that I deserve. You took that penalty. You took the wrath. You took the price. And you offered me free, amazing forgiveness and grace so that I can cry out and say, oh Lord, I hope in you. I hope in you. Let's sing to that end as we worship the God that we've heard from. Father, we thank you for your amazing revealing of your glory, the revelation of who you are. We thank you that you are declaring through creation 
that you are God, but we thank you that you did not stop there. And you declare in your word that you are good. You are God, you are good, you are our Redeemer. Jesus, the Son of God, our Messiah, the Lamb who was slain for sinners like me. We praise you, we thank you, and we pray that you would be glorified as we praise you, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen.